Last week, we were looking at uh, the promised Savior that was to come from Isaiah chapter 53. And as we looked at that, we learned a couple of important things for us that I think help us to get ready for what we need to do today, which is to begin that idea of preparing the way of the Lord in our own hearts. And as we looked at that, we talked about what it meant for the Messiah to make our relationship with the Father whole again. If you could think back with me for a second, it said in Isaiah chapter 53 that God was going to do something amazing through his son whom he would send. And that was specifically that that son, the the Messiah, was going to bear our sicknesses and our sins. And we talked about what that meant for him to to lift off what should have been rightly ours and bear those to the cross. And we also learned a a very, very important thing for us is we learned that uh, there's not a lot of people beating down the doors of the church, are there? It wasn't in Isaiah's day. It's not in our day either. And yet we have a message to proclaim. And as we do that, we can be confident that God is at work in salvation. And if God is at work in salvation, then we have every reason to be confident in sharing our faith and and telling people about this Messiah who is to come. You know, I think that's important for us, particularly as we talk about preparing the way. We're going to see today how important it was for John to do the work of preparation, John the Baptist. And we're going to see, particularly in our lives, that we might have some work to do. You've probably been thinking about preparing for Christmas or preparing for some upcoming things. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. We have a a grow group that I'm in charge of, and my grow group has an outing that we're going to take uh, here in a couple of weeks. And so I've got some preparations to make to get ready for that. And and uh, we'll be preparing for that. And I've been invited to a number of Sunday school class parties that people are preparing for. And you're preparing your homes and uh, things like that for people to come and even maybe preparing for gifts that you have to buy. But it would be really sad for us to run past the preparation that needs to be done in our hearts this morning for Christmas. It's so easy for us to just think about Christmas in terms of an expectation that it comes on the calendar and we expect that we would have a good time and we would expect that we would maybe be with friends and family and miss that God might be moving in our midst this year and we have some preparation to get ready for that. I'm always reminded of that because one of the first things that happens for me is the Uh, in the Christmas season is that our Stone Soup Ministry has their holiday camp. Uh, This past Friday night was maybe the largest, I don't know, Daniel, it was maybe the largest holiday camp. Donna, I saw Donna somewhere. Donna, we we had a massive holiday camp uh, with friends of all abilities here and, and, and learning about what Christmas is and then seeing them put on the Christmas, Christmas pageant for us and for their families that night really sets the idea that Christmas is upon us now. And I just wonder if we might not, as believers, have some preparation in our hearts to do this week as we get ready. Today we're looking at the life of John the Baptist to prepare the way in our hearts. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. First thing to mention as we get started in this passage of Scripture is that as we're looking at John chapter 1, We're looking at a couple of different Johns, and let's just explain that for just a second. John chapter 1 was written by John the disciple, John the apostle. Uh, You you can use those terms interchangeably. And he writes for us the New Testament books, the Gospel of John, 
the letters that we know as the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he writes the book of prophecy for us that closes out the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the revelation of John. By, by, by chance, anybody old enough to remember a Christian artist named Phil Keggy who wrote the song, John the Revelator? Anybody from back then? You know, I just, I just wonder. Sometimes I have to throw these random things to you from my growing... Yeah, you know, I was telling my parents... I'm sorry, I'm, can we take just a... I have to do this. I was telling my parents, there's some fun things about growing up that I really remember that were very, very cheesy that we don't do anymore. And maybe we shouldn't, but uh, one of the things I remember, you know, we, we, we sing songs like John the Revelator. I mean, it was a great album of that kind of thing. But does anybody remember the song, shake another hand, shake a hand next to you, shake another hand and sing along? Anybody? Yeah, I'm not making it up. You know I'm not making it up. We used to sing that with gusto, you know, like it really mattered. And I don't know that it did, but it sure was fun, wasn't it? There's some things about this that are important, though. John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus. Now, we refer to him oftentimes as a cousin of Jesus, kind of distant. And I don't know if you were from Tennessee, you might say he's a cousin twice removed or something like that. The idea is that he's probably second, third, maybe fourth cousins with Jesus, but let's just put it this way. He's a relative of Jesus. The Bible doesn't give us exact, uh, exact nature of that, but what it says is that Jesus's mother, Mary, was a relative of John's mother, Elizabeth. They were relatives and they both had a unique pregnancy that God intervened in. God intervened in John's mother's uh, life, uh, Elizabeth, in in a special way, and we'll see that. Uh, And he intervened in Jesus's mother's life in a very special way. And you heard Emily and Dan reading about Zachariah and how that birth being foretold through the angel Gabriel. The Bible tells us some interesting things about John, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to read for us John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28 at the beginning of this gospel. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then they asked, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah the prophet said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He's the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened at Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The Bible tells us about John that he had come out of the wilderness and that he was wearing a a clothing made of camel hair and that he had a leather belt wrapped around his waist and that he ate locust and wild honey. Now that was already a stark contrast to everybody else who was not wearing camel hair and a leather belt and eating locust and wild honey, but it hearkened back to them. And this is why they started to maybe make the connection 
that he might have been Elijah because Elijah was known to be a man who they said was hairy and wore a leather belt. And someone said of him one time when that description was given, that's Elijah. So in the Old Testament, that was the description of Elijah. And now you see the description of John being very similar. Uh, It's also interesting that at the beginning of John's gospel here, we find a delegation sent from Jerusalem that's made up of priests and also Levites. And that should be very important for us to understand. This guy, John, shows up and he's baptizing people. Now, we may think that we were the first baptizers as, as Baptists. That's not true. It wouldn't have been unusual for people to be baptized for the cleansing of their sins, even in the, in the New Testament period before the time of Christ coming on in his ministry. And John's doing that. In fact, the, the scripture records for us at one time, which is I, I just find amazing, uh, that some people came out to, to, to be baptized And John looked at them and said, what are you doing, you brood of vipers? Why did you come out to be baptized? That's a great way to grow your following, isn't it? To call everybody around you, you brood of vipers, you scoundrels. What are you guys doing out here, you scallywags? You're terrible. Why are you out here? And and so he's this voice crying in the wilderness. He's a truth speaker, but he's also someone who's trying to get people to see what is to Come And as these priests and Levites come out, the priests and the Levites would have been the people who ministered in the temple, experts in all things in the worship of God. And they come out and say, all right, man, who are you? Did you notice that the scripture said when they asked that, it's a funny phrase that it says in verse 20, he didn't deny it. Who are you? He didn't deny it. That's a funny construction, isn't it? Who are you? In other words, the question was loaded. The question was, was, was full of expectation. And he doesn't deny it, but instead he gives clarification by saying to them several things. First, I want you to notice what he said about himself. I am not the Messiah, verse 20 records for us. This is important. The Messiah was the promised one. We use that word Christ to talk about the Messiah, the one who would come and, and take away the sins of the world. And John clearly says, if you're asking, am I the Messiah? No, not me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the promised one. And this title is important because several people had been coming throughout the years who would claim that title. By the way, that hasn't stopped even in modern days, hasn't it? If you, if you remember, uh, I, I was uh, probably, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years old when our school installed something called Channel One. It was, it was news to be able to be watched for teenagers. Uh, and if you ever watch CNN, there's a guy on there named Anderson Cooper. He was one of the first like correspondents and, and kind of host of this Channel One. And I literally watched unfold every day in my choir class, because that's when we watched Channel One. I literally watched unfold before my eyes what happened in Waco, Texas with the Branch Davidians. It it was right there every day that was going on, the standoff, the standoff, those kind of things. People are still saying, I'm him. I'm the God, not John. John says, not me. I am not the Messiah. He perfectly understood his purpose and what it was. 
and what it wasn't. Now that's an important for us to understand this morning is that John understood his purpose of who he was and what he wasn't. Now the reason these people are asking this is because this is at the forefront of Jewish life. You, you heard earlier that it had been 400 years since a prophetic word of the Lord had been given. Now I want you to think about this for a second because that's very, very unusual. If you go back from, from the time of God speaking to Adam and then to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph and all these things and then the prophets and, and his kings, you see God doing a thing and then for 400 years, it's like it grows silent, quiet. Now remember, these are people that the Holy Spirit has not come upon yet. Like we talk about having the Holy Spirit living in us and we have the word of God speaking to us. For 400 years, they're waiting in anticipation for the Messiah. And here comes this guy who looks kind of crazy, eating a locust and honey and wearing this camel hair and calling people who are religious vipers and, and, and really calling them out. And, and he understands the, the, the importance of this, but he says, it's not me. These people are looking for this Messiah because they are under pressure as well. Not just from 400 years of silence, and that is pressure. Have you been married long enough to endure silence? You know, don't you love it when you're married and you just ask your wife, what's wrong? Nothing. Hmm, it's going to be a long night. You know, nothing, right? You know the feeling. You ask your husband, what's the matter? Nothing. You know the feeling, right? Silence when it's an hour, it feels like it's overwhelming. 400 years, but also they're under Roman rule. They're waiting for a Messiah to come and shake off the Roman rule is what they think. And John says, it's not me. I want to just point out to you really quickly the importance of knowing who Jesus is and who he isn't. When you find someone who wants to take Jesus and make less of him and elevate themselves, you have the beginning of a cult. That's how it starts to work out. When they make less of Jesus and they make more of themselves, you have the beginning of a cult. Because we're worshiping God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit. And when we see this in John's life, he perfectly understands who he is and who he isn't. And so they ask him another question. Are you Elijah or a prophet? Now, Elijah figures heavily in the Old Testament. On Wednesday nights in my grow group, we've been studying the life of Elijah. And you may remember that Elijah is someone that everyone's looking for, particularly because he's spoken of throughout the Old Testament. But Elijah's one of the prophets and he never dies. You remember that Elijah didn't see natural death. He's taken up into heaven by chariots of fire. Uh, the book of 2 Kings records for us. And later we find Elijah and Moses meet Jesus and three of his disciples on the mount of what's called transfiguration, where Jesus is revealed that he's transfigured. What does that mean? It means that he was revealed to them to not just be fully human all of a sudden. They saw him in his glory. And do you remember what, what the disciples said? This is awesome. Let's hang out here forever. We'll build a tabernacle for Elijah and for Moses and for you. And we're just going to hang out here and it's going to be great. And then they're gone as soon as this cloud comes down. And the Lord says, this is my son. And, or God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, a lot of people believe that we're going to see Elijah and Moses again, perhaps 
in the book of Revelation with the two witnesses who come and speak again. It's not, not exactly spoken, but it could be, right? It, we, we might see it that way. It's spoken of that way. So Elijah figures heavenly this. I want you to read Malachi with me. The last verses of the Old Testament speak of this. Chapter three, verses one through four. See, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. Then the Lord, then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in see. He is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like the refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. So you see that he's coming early. He's going to be this one that comes and speaks before the Lord who's going to be in their midst, who will come to the temple. And then in chapter four, I want you to see the last two verses of the Old Testament, very important for us. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The end. So why does John say, I'm not Elijah? Particularly when on the Mount of Transfiguration as they leave, people are asking Jesus, are, are you Elijah? Did we just see Elijah? And he says, Elijah has already come. He was talking about John. Well, John rightly says that he's not Elijah. You, you just heard this read from the Gospel of Luke as Dan and Emily were reading uh, this for us this morning. I want to read it for you again from Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. When the, when the angel spoke to Zechariah and was telling him, you're about to have a baby, listen to what he says in verse 13. The angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Sound familiar from the Old Testament? And he will go before him in the spirit and power of who? Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to understanding of righteousness to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So John answers correctly, I am not Elijah, but he's in the spirit of Elijah. He had that spirit on him. It's that reference that Gabriel made as he talked about that. He was not going to be Elijah because Elijah's still living. You can't replace Elijah. Elijah never died. Elijah shows up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But what happens is he has a calling on his life to make straight the paths. That seems funny to us who live in Tennessee who have to ride around mountains and valleys and creeks and rivers and all these things that you country people know very well. But if you're from Florida, the roads aren't laid out that way. They're in a grid, aren't they? 
If you ever go down there, it's in a grid. It's easy. Why? Because there's nothing to ride around. You don't have to go over and around the mountain. You just turn left here, go right there. It's easy for it to be laid out in a grid. Now, when we talk about making straight the path of the Lord, it's an imagery used for us from the Old Testament. Why does the Old Testament talk about this all the time? Because if you're a traveler and you're walking, what's the shortest distance between two points? Straight line with no detours, right? You don't want to have to be up and around and going around the mountain. And so the idea that it was going to be straight was massive for them. And what it's a call to be is a time to be righteous. And so when we read this in John, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 23, when he says, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. If you notice maybe in your copy of the scripture like mine, Mine has it kind of indented and those words are emboldened because it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. What he's saying here, look who I am. I'm the herald. I'm the prophet that goes before and speaks truth. One is coming after me. John knew his purpose. And his purpose was to call people to righteousness, to be ready for the Lord. You would look at verse 26 of John chapter 1. I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He's one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened at Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Did you notice what John said there that was pretty important? He said to them, there's one standing among you who you have not recognized yet. That fits with what we studied last week, wasn't it? In Isaiah chapter 53, where it said his form was nothing that we would look at him. And we talked about the kings, King Saul, King David, the, the Saul, who was this king who was strong and tall. And David, who's this king that, that has a, a beautiful appearance. He's a handsome guy. And it said about the Savior, he's just ordinary. He's standing right in your midst. And you don't even recognize him. But John knew his purpose because he says, there's one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. Always making less of himself. That famous passage of scripture in John 3 where he says, I must increase and, I mean, I must decrease so that he can increase. In other words, I've come and fulfilled my purpose. I think a lot of us if we were to be very honest, spend time in our lives wondering about our purpose. We really wonder about why God might have left us here. What God might have for us. And I find John's understanding of his purpose to be a clarion call for us this morning. John understood his purpose was not to make much of himself. Well, that smacks against everything that we're told and see in our lives today. Because we're told that if you want to be important in this world, if you want to be successful, you need to build your brand. You, you need to make much of yourself. You need to show the world what you're doing. You, you need to make much of, of what's going on here. It, it invades the church too. It's one of the things that's one of the most maddening things in all of church work for me today is to see that we feel like we're trying to build a brand of a church. 
We're not trying to build a brand of a church because we're not trying to build the kingdom of Judson Baptist Church. We're trying to be part and builders of the kingdom of heaven. There's a massive difference in that. And if we don't understand that, the compromise that starts to take place inside of our church will be enormous because we'll feel like the ends justify the means to do whatever we need to do to build something that's attractive and something that we can be proud of. I hope you're proud of your church. I love our church. I'm proud of of the fact that we had stone soup on, on Friday night. I'm proud of the fact that we had our students yesterday on a student serve day when they could have been doing anything. They were out raking leaves in the rain in the morning and taking care of opportunities. I, I'm grateful for all of those things. I'm excited, aren't you, that we're going to have a Christmas uh, night this year on, on December 19th where we're able to have a Christmas musical again this year. I, I'm excited about those things. I'm excited that we're seeing people saved and transformed by the power of God and set on a road to discipleship. Those things make me so happy. I'm so proud of, of what we're doing in mission work. Those things are great, but we're not trying to build our kingdom. We're trying to build the kingdom of heaven. And the difference in that can sometimes feel very slight, but it is massive. And for us to understand that, well, if we don't understand that here, how will we understand it as it trickles into our own lives? Maybe we think that our purpose is to make money. Maybe we think that that's our purpose. Our purpose is just to work hard, provide for our family, make as much as we can, do as much as we can, provide as much as we can, and that's our purpose in life. Or, or maybe we think that our purpose really is, is to build a family or, or to build a home. And, and, and those things, while very good, get very confusing for us because it's not our purpose. John understood his purpose was to make much of Jesus. When I ask you this question, does it cause you to ponder for just a moment? Because it does me. What's my purpose? In everything that we do, our purpose is to make much of Jesus. Whether that is at work or at home or at play, if we understand our purpose, maybe we should adopt John's John's thinking to say that he must increase as I decrease, that that would make much of Jesus for me to understand my purpose would be massive. And if I understand my purpose, then ultimately it informs my job. Ultimately it informs my home life. Ultimately it informs the way that I spend my free time. Because if my purpose is to make much of Jesus in everything that I do, and to understand that he's important and I'm not. Oh, that'd be refreshing. How much time did you spend this week thinking about you? Are you afflicted with selfishness like I am? I mean, honestly, how much time did you spend thinking about you? I find that I'm one of my favorite subjects. Reminds me of a, a story my dad once told of, of meeting uh, one of the great authors that uh, had been in Baptist life, and uh, they happened to be on an airplane together. And this guy sat down next to him, and he said, "I can't hear really more, so you I hear much anymore. So you just shut up, and I'll talk and tell you all about me." You know, and uh, I, I think sometimes we're afflicted with that, right? We we don't want to admit it, but we're so self-consumed in that. And John understood perfectly who he was, 
And that even in greatness, even as the crowd was following him, what was he doing? He said, it's not about me. It's about him. I'm here to prepare the way. And that preparing the way was a call to righteousness. As he prepared the way, he said one of the most startling things. Read the next verse with me in verse 29. The very next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. I think it's funny because we often think that maybe John the Baptist and Jesus spent time at family reunions hanging out. And maybe that their mothers got them together and said, you know, listen, boys, what Gabriel has spoken to us is going to be massive in y'all's lives. And y'all stay tight together. Y'all are, going to, y'all are going to be on the scene together later. And it's going to be huge for you. But that doesn't seem to be the indication. In fact, later on in John's life, he's despairing a little bit because he's in jail. And John's going to lose his life because there's a man named Herod who's, who's ruling over that province area. Uh, he's responsible for that. And Herod is angry with John uh, and, and fears John. And John, in jail, sends some disciples to Jesus to say, are you, are you the one? And he's already said, are you the one? But can I, can I tell you why I think God sometimes puts those things in there for us? Because sometimes when we despair, we ask the same questions. And we feel like we're in bad company when we have to ask that question. Now, Lord, are your promises real? If John the Baptist can ask that question, you can too. And God answers that question in Jesus every time. Jesus said, yes, I am. I mean, go back and tell him what you've seen. The blind receive their sight. The lame are made to walk. And that, that comforted John in his time of need. So I don't think that, that he was so assured of this. And as he said here to, to the folks that are coming, look, here he is. Now, I don't know if, if that was a total surprise to him, but it doesn't seem like they had this all planned out, does it? God had revealed it to him, and God further reveals it to him as he baptizes him because the Lord said to him, the one you see the Spirit coming and resting on him like a dove, that will be the one. And that happened. Everything pointed to Jesus. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That language is so rich for us this morning, but we have to understand it in the context of the hearers to get the full meaning of it. All of these people, as we talked about last week, were familiar with the term deliverance. Why was deliverance so important for them? It was important because they had spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt. They had been beaten. They had been tortured. They had been forced to work in a way that was inhumane. Their rights violated. Ultimately, their children killed until God intervened on their behalf through a man named Moses. And the way that God intervened, if you remember, was through something called the Passover. I briefly mentioned it last week, but the Passover happened when on the final night, 
God instructed the children of Israel to prepare a Passover meal with a spotless lamb. They were to take that lamb and they were to eat all of it. If their family was too small to consume that lamb by themselves, they were to grab everybody else, another family, and make sure that they did that. As they, they killed the lamb in preparation for the dinner, they took some of the blood of that lamb and they put it on the doorpost of their home. And the death angel passed over them that night and did not afflict them, but afflicted all of the Egyptians and they all lost their firstborn. Can you imagine the terribleness of that night? Can you imagine the terror that must have came through Egypt? Awful, unthinkable. And in that moment, the children of Israel were delivered. When John says, here is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, he is speaking about a deliverance that is far greater than being delivered from captivity. Because being delivered from captivity would be amazing. Being delivered from slavery is unthinkable how great that would be. We, we can't even imagine how joyous that might be. And this is yet far greater because there's something greater in our lives that afflicts us than being bound in slavery. And it's called the slavery that we're bound to in sin. As John points to Jesus, he's letting them see this is the lamb who will finally and once and for all Take away the sin of the world. How does that work? If we think about the Passover lamb, it had to be unblemished. You couldn't have a freckle on it, you know? Uh, maybe you've had a dog or something grown up, like Spot had a, a ring around its eye or something like that, you know, a different coloration, and you thought it was really cute and that kind of thing. In the Old Testament, those types of animals were not worthy of being sacrificed to God because you wanted to have as pure an animal as possible because animals were currency, right? So God says to them, don't bring me the animal you don't want. I want an unblemished animal without defect. And that's what you bring. And that's what you sacrifice when your sins are going to be uh, covered over in sacrifice. Here's Jesus going to take away the sins of the world. How could he be the lamb who does that? Well, he's unblemished. Jesus is God who took on flesh. And just like you, just like me, he's raised by, by earthly parents here in this world. And he, he goes through all of the things that you go through. The difference is, is that he is without blemish. He doesn't sin. He never lies. He never disobeys his mom. His parents are never called in for a school conference doesn't happen. He's unblemished by sin. Tempted in every way, just like we are, but unblemished, unstained by sin. Our sins placed on him, as we studied last week, and he's the only acceptable sacrifice, the lamb, who could take them. It's funny that the scripture refers to Jesus as a lamb and a lion. Those don't seem to go very well together, do they? It would seem to me if you had a lion, it'd want to eat the lamb. 
But Jesus is both, isn't he? He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins and one day he will be the lion. The lion of Judah who will rule and reign. When he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross, what's taking place is the restoration of our relationship. Those of us who understand that we are lost, we are separated from God, far off from God, we are brought back to God through his death on the cross because he was the spotless lamb. You couldn't die for your sins because your sacrifice wouldn't be accepted. It wouldn't work. You're blemished. I'm blemished. Tarnished by sin. So today, as we talk about preparing the way, could I ask you to think about three things with me this morning? One of them is very elemental, but I think it's important. John understood that he was not the Messiah. In other words, he was not God. The, the struggle for every person today is that we would never maybe say out loud to someone, I'm a God. But what we might say is I'm in charge of my life and I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, which is the idolatry of self. John understood his place in all of this. He is God and I am not. And I would ask us this morning to just reaffirm that in our lives or maybe for the first time to affirm it in your life. Maybe you have never come to the place where you've realized you're not in control of your own life. For us who are believers, that's a massive moment to reaffirm that, to say that he is God and I am not and I serve him and I know my place and I must decrease every day so that he can increase to understand who we are. If we understand who we are, then we can understand our purpose. There's so many people walking around today and they don't know their purpose they spend their lives searching for purpose. And I'm talking about not just outside the walls of the church, inside the walls of the church. Because they don't understand that our purpose is to make much of Jesus. We're not a, con, uh, a creedal people. We don't recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. These different things that maybe if you go to other churches you'll hear them do this. But I love one of the creeds talks about the chief end of man is to glorify God. What does that mean? The ultimate purpose of our lives is to glorify God, to know our purpose in life, that in every way we glorify God. That means that when I show up at work tomorrow, I'm glorifying God by being on time. I'm showing up and doing a good job, and that glorifies God because whatever my hands find to do, I'm glorifying God. It means that if I'm working in the nursery, the preschool in the next hour, I'm glorifying God as I change diapers or if I'm at home and changing diapers or, or making a meal for the family, I'm glorifying God. It means that I'm when, on, when I'm on the ball field or walking the halls of school, that I'm consistent in who I am so that I glorify God and point people to Jesus. In every way that we would say, the words of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts are pleasing unto him. To know that we are not God, to know our purpose, 
and to really behold the Lamb. When you behold the Lamb this Advent season, I want you to think about the manger. And I want you to think about the fact that it's so much more than a story. It's life. It's life. When we behold the Lamb and who He is and what He has done for us, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus today, those of us who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb shed for us, what that does for us is cause us to rejoice in our security because our security in God, we're not held in God by anything that we have done. We're held by Jesus' death on the cross, the the lamb who died in our place, his blood shed for us. That's our security. That made us white. It covered our sins and washed us and cleansed us from our sin. And if we could behold him in his glory, to look upon him this Christmas season, it would change so much of our lives. It would frame the season for us in the right way to not just be a holiday. I don't know about you. I'm ready for the holiday. I'm excited about the holiday. I hope you'll get a little time off from work. I'm ready for some time off from work. All those things are good. But for us to behold him and the richness of who he is. I was just spending yesterday morning. I don't know. Do you ever just need a reset? Am I the only one? Y'all are very spiritual. Maybe you should preach next week. Um, I I needed a reset. I just just found myself. I woke up early and, and I was just thinking about it. Lord, I'm just... I'm messed up right now. I, I just, my, my thinking's not right. My attitude's not right. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm this, I'm this, this kind of thing. You know, and, and just needing that reset. The, the way that that happens is we behold the lamb. You lift up your eyes to Jesus. And you remember the sacrifice. And what does that do for us as believers? That reset comes as we go to what 1 John one nine tells us, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Cleansed by what? The blood of the lamb. We're held in his grip by the work of Jesus on the cross. And if you have never come to a place in your life where you have truly fixed your gaze on who Jesus is, can I offer that to you this morning? Can I remind you of the goodness of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Why? Because you were under God's wrath and because you were blemished just like me, just like everyone else in here. You were tarnished by these things that we call sin where you had violated God's God's word. You'd violated God's commands. You had no hope. And John says, I came to make way before you straight, straight to the Lord. The Bible says that if you would confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, you'd be saved today. That's what it means to behold the Lamb. John was pointing out something beautiful for people who had Jesus right in their midst. Jesus is not far from you today. You don't have to go searching for him. He is here. You say, now, Pastor, where? He's as close to you as you want him to be. And the scripture says that he knocks 
And for any that would open the door, he will come in and have fellowship with him. He's waiting. The question is, have you beheld him? If you've never given your life to Christ, I pray that today you would. And you say, well, Pastor, I wouldn't know where to begin. That's okay. At the end of our service, I'm just going to be hanging right here. After everybody's up moving around, I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to have you come by and just talk to me. And I'd love to answer any questions that you might have about knowing Jesus. Church, let's pray. Father, we come before you in this time and we're asking you to remind us today of who you are, who we are not. You are God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our God, three in one. And we pray as we behold your goodness in Christ today. You would remind us of our purpose. Father, may we not be like people who are lost, who just come to church, and that's the only difference. Lord, may we know our purpose. Help us from wandering and straying from that purpose to make much of Jesus everywhere we go. And may we behold him in his glory today. And our prayer is for those this morning who are far from Christ. Holy Spirit, that you would move in their lives and that you would do the work of salvation and save them today. We ask, Father, these things in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.